it seems that we also use this early portion to talk about fashion for whatever reason. You know that pair of like ochre pants I wear all the time? Ogre? Ochre. They're like yellow, yellow brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I caved and I bought another two pairs of Of the same pants? Not the same color. Same pants. Different color. Because they're so comfortable and I wear them all the time. But I keep myself from wearing them as much as I would because of their color. Because people remember. Oh, yeah, of course. It's like a sharp color. Which is why you should just wear all black. So now I've bought them again in dark blue and black. Nice. Yeah. I'm very pleased. I don't own very many doubles. T-shirts only. Like, I don't, I won't go and buy the same pair of pants. Even if they're like really amazing? No, because I think that at some point in time, like, there's so much fashion being put out into the general realm that I appreciate and enjoy that I'm sure there's going to be another pant that I'll enjoy. Even more. Or it's, That's I mean, That's so optimistic. Dude, but you, I feel like- There's so much fashion out there. There is so much fashion out there, but it's not always easy to find like the perfectly fitting thing. That's the thing that's hard to get. <sighs> I just okay. look at like, it as like a chapter. Yeah, I know, but it's like a chapter. It's a time in my life. It's like, okay, move on to something else. Wow. But I also, I mean, I, most people, if they can, should buy clothes that last a while. Yeah. I, I, I mean, fuck, I, I wear a lot of valence and some of the taping, like the inner taping is like coming off, which is kind of a bummer. You can oh. fix it, but. That is a bummer. Yeah. I mean, there's no way around it because especially in Hong Kong because you sweat a lot, right? And it delaminates and whatnot. All right. Last question before we start. Do you hang your t-shirts? No. Do you? I started hanging them because it's easier for me to know what t-shirt is because otherwise they're all black, right? Like when you look in a drawer, I have to open a bunch up before, like I have to unfold them before I recognize which shirt it is. You need a lot of closet space to hang your t-shirts. Not really. I mean- like, I really don't have that many pieces. I have, I've shared this before. I have an air table that tracks every single piece of garment I have. And it looks like a lot, but actually the, the overall footprint isn't that big. My partner, Stanley, he wears his t-shirts in order. So this, he has a stack. They're not hung, okay? There's a stack of t-shirts. All the same t-shirts, though? No, not all the same t-shirts. Just oh, even graphic t-shirts. t-shirts. Yeah. Graphic oh, t-shirts, an- non-graphic t-shirts. Just, they're... All the shirts, all the t-shirts, shorts like t-shirts. In stack order. Of I know. That makes no sense to he me. He doesn't listen to this podcast, by the way. So he'll never find Yo, out. Man, that I makes no this. sense. He wears them from top to bottom. And then he, when they're washed, they're like replaced appropriately in order. And so I've asked him, don't you ever wake up and you're like, I want to wear this shirt, you With know, like graphic. in the middle of the stack, like third one down. And he says no. I actually really appreciate that. I mean, I kind of have that with my underwear because I have some underwear, which is from a a certain brand. And when I hit that, that's when I know I'm really fucked because it's like, oh shit, you're like running out of underwear. He does it with his underwear too, but I felt like that was TMI, but yeah. This is Making It Up episode 198 co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis at FM Below Ground to talk about things that we're interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. 
Making it up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making it up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash makeup. Let's get into it. My topic this week is a rather guess, interesting positive one. Because I think a lot of times we just talk about negativity on this podcast. <laughs> Probably my fault. But it's a very simple title. It's called Brunello Cuccinelli says, 2021 growth spurt, not rational. Very to the point. It appeared in Vogue Business and was written by Luke Leitch. So if you're not familiar with this brand, Brunello Cuccinelli, it's basically like a sort of a, a high-end menswear brand. Uh, started in Italy by a son of a farmer, which I didn't know. And when he first launched in 1978, he started with cashmere jumpers. But I think over the course of this brand's existence, he's actually developed a really strong point of view. And because the the whole thing is in some ways family owned, I can go into that a little bit later. It's developed a very unique culture around the brand. So I think that there's two ways of looking at this brand which ultimately come to a point, a positive point. It's number one, it's a brand that's of reputable quality. And number two, the underlying message and direction of the company is also really well respected, which we'll go into the latter half. Like I can't really speak with the clothing. It's not my style. I'm never going to wear that stuff. But I think that it's been a brand that I think a lot of people have come to really respect based off of the vision. So I think that one way to look at it, it's probably in some ways in an Italian menswear equivalent of Comme des Garçons, right? Sure. Ray Kawakubo, uh, Brunello, kind of like similar. I wouldn't say they're in the similar age range. They're kind of off. Maybe. Mindset? Yeah, mindset is probably the better answer. In short, they had actually a really, really good 2021 like all things considered given we're still in the second year of covid limited <laughs> tourism coming into italy or wherever like and obviously for a lot of people they're dependent on mainland chinese tourists and for brunello it's not really any any different in that regard this whole piece kick, is kicked off by the fact that last year they had 30.9% growth in their annual sales and that allowed them to generate a net revenue of 809 million US dollars up from 618 million dollars and that's what Cuccinelli says is triple what he prefers and it's interesting because I had to look into this because as a publicly traded company usually you're you're giving up a cap on your growth if that makes sense because ultimately you're a publicly listed company people are investing in you to obviously appreciate their own capital and to make money. But here you are kind of openly coming out and saying, hey, I actually don't want it to grow like this, which obviously fundamentally changes it because not everyone's going after maximum growth. Mm -hmm. But I do find it to be an interesting idea, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not typical. Yeah. So he, he went on to say in the interview, we do not wish to grow fast. Rapid sudden growth isn't rational and it isn't sustainable. It creates problems. Instead, we work towards a gracious, stable, and harmonious rate of growth, ideally around 10%. 
So this to me is actually really interesting because fashion, as we know, it has never really been able to kind of, you know, subscribe to this. Like you couldn't necessarily run a fast fashion company like this. And this is also something no, you have to mention yeah. is that as a luxury retailer, there's far less price sensitivity. Mm. So that Cuccinelli sweater that was, you know, 3000 euros, you know, today, it could be 3,700 euros in 12 months. And arguably the demographic for it would still have the appetite to purchase it, which I think changes. But I think what's also interesting is that when you have people at the higher ends of the echelon of fashion communicating this vision, it changes how people perceive their brand building on a lower level. Cause I think there's two things. It's more like, Oh, it's possible, right? This is a living, breathing example of it. But secondly, what's also interesting is that it becomes a branding element into itself. I get what you mean. It's like part of the mission, vision and values. Of yeah. The company. Yeah. And it's like, it's actually kind of crazy to come out and say this. And what, one thing that I, I liked about this piece is like, obviously there's a very heavy business slant around it. Ultimately it is a Vogue business piece. But there is part of it that I found interesting towards the end where he has this like really great quote. I think that once you get to a certain age, you lose creativity, although you do not lose taste. And I couldn't help but feel like that is like a, a very valid statement. I mean, I'm getting older every, we're all getting older every single day, right? Yes, but I think that's true. I've, I've said this before this and you've true. said the same answer. You've given me the same answer. Oh, I'm sure I did. <laughs> but consistent. We're consistent. But it, it, it does kind of ring true because at some point there is this passing of the baton where creativity now now is not your strength because I think creativity takes a lot of energy and a lot of uh how do you call it it's like to be creative means you just jump out and do something without really worrying about what is the outcome and also it requires to I mean we say this so much people are probably tired of it that you spontaneously imagine different types of connections and you build bridges between unexpected things and that gets harder the more that you've done and the more familiar you the are more success you you've do. had yeah yeah so i think that make those leaps and thought yeah. as easily so i think that's also interesting because depending on the positioning of a brand and with this brand obviously being more of a heritage style brand not everybody can start to shed some of the creativity aspect of it because i mean ultimately for them, creativity might look different than what is creativity for a Nike, right? Where it's cutting edge sports, where always seeking out new partners or even like, um, I guess the opposite of this type of luxury brand, like let's say a Balenciaga or something that arguably needs to always stay relevant with its pulse on culture, mm. which I think is, is fundamentally interesting because these guys in themselves with Cuccinelli are like creating their own culture that people are slipstreaming behind. But I think that when you come to other brands, they need to have one foot in their own culture and also one foot in creating hype yeah. and being part of what is the hype cycle. So obviously in their businesses, it's like understanding wh where movements are going and then slipstreaming behind them. And you're saying that Cuccinelli, they get to sidestep that especially, entirely. Especially. Like they're in a completely different train track. I mean, I think most people would prefer to be in their path than having to chase trends. Yeah. Right? But I think that in some in some ways, it, it's also how you build the company and how you set it up. And like I said, not every business, if it's branded around, quote unquote, trendiness, you can't really escape that, right? Yeah, I agree. I think sportswear is hard. 
sports-related wear. It doesn't actually have to be, like, wear for athletic function, but I think that's an area of fashion that's hard to be in uh, the Cuccinelli mindset. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really important around the culture of Cuccinelli is also just the business setup, and it's in many ways like a family operation. One thing before I jump into sort of the breakdown of the team is that uh, their comfort with slow tempered growth is at odds with a broader luxury industry. This is a quote. And the company has made strategic moves in the last decade to secure its financial positioning, including transferring holding company Fidone SRL to Esperia Trust Company in 2014. The move designed to keep the business family owned was unusual as far as most luxury business structures go. And consistent growth is the norm at conglomerates such as LVMH and Caring, which seek out billion-dollar valuations for portfolio brands and call it success for reaching double-digit quarterly growth. So obviously, this is something they've been mindful of in creating a long-lasting legacy. Uh, and one thing is that when you look at the structure within it right now, it's definitely a family-run operation because he has his daughter, Carolina, who is the co-president and co-creative director, who assumed that role in 2021. Her brother-in-law, Ricardo Stefanelli, was one of two CEOs who works alongside his sister, Camila, uh, who sits on the board and works on the women's wear design team. And Carolina's husband, Alessio, works on the men's wear team. So it's a very much a family operation. Yeah, it's interesting. I think what's really uh, admirable is that, you know, earlier we were saying about how there's this mindset and it almost becomes a tenant of the brand or part of that branding strategy but it's evident that it's not just words right it's not just something that sounds good or is appealing to consumers but the way they have financially structured the company in terms of the holding company and the leadership of it all of it reflects that same way of thinking yeah and maybe that is like a broader discussion too is that the way you set up and run your business is a byproduct of the outcome you're seeking Right. I mean, I, I don't know enough about, you know, this transferring of shares and whatnot, but I, I do think that we've talked about this in, in several capacities in the past, but not as deliberately. Because one thing that often comes to mind is the way that you set up a media company, right? Like, is it ad driven? Is it subscription driven? And that, that in, in short, will obviously dictate the results you're seeking. Mm -hmm. Like, as an ad based business, the type of content you need to create to be successful in that lane is different than one that is seeking to keep people engaged and or denote quality, Yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense and is probably not something that I thought a lot about before and probably as a consumer still don't pay much attention to. But in terms of what makes sense is that a company's sort of behind the scenes operations and system is in line with public facing things. Mm -hmm. you so how you talk about your brand and, you know, the decisions you make, they can't be divorced from, you know, who are our investors, who's on the board, you know, how do we pay people, things like that. One thing, on the topic of like subscription or like SaaS related businesses, it's like looking at an Adobe, right? Mm -hmm. I, I actually don't really have an issue paying for Adobe CC. And the reason being is that I feel that an Adobe CC type product is me paying for its ongoing support versus like one-offs where, you know, if you build something and it's for a really small market, once people buy it, 
there's not really any need for them to upgrade or there's not enough people upgrading. And as a company, you, you're basically losing that revenue stream. It's a mm. very, it's a very lumpy revenue stream, mm. right? Which, you know, I don't know if we question the same sort of experience we get with Netflix versus Adobe CC and whether we should. Adobe CC is much more expensive. Well, it, it's expensive, but also it's like a different, is it, it the, the mechanism behind it's the same, right? Is it subscription-based product yeah it is a subscription-based product error gosh it is different though isn't it because like adobe cc is a tool and netflix is a that helps tool. you make money it's an entertainment device but i don't actually i don't personally have an maybe i'm overly simplifying it with adobe's subscription model i do think that for younger people it is exorbitant it is 50 bucks us a month i think Upwards, yeah. which I think is expensive. Yeah, you're right. I think it's too much for teenagers to pay yeah. for sure. And I think that's like an issue people have with it. And I would say when it comes to, I don't know how we got into Adobe, actually. We're talking about Cuccinelli. But yeah. I will say this is that there's not enough of a competition for yeah. Adobe. I mean, that's, yeah. Which isn't their fault. They do, definitely a great job. Invested. they do a great job with yeah. making their software. Yeah. But I guess actually I'll let me bring it back cuz this is kind of where I was going to go with this is that for me Adobe has consistently put out new features. For especially for me I use Lightroom a lot. So there's a lot of features that I'm like consistently amazed by like maybe it's not anything too crazy but for example they have this feature that allows you to immediately colorize a black and white photo. And that to me like you know I assume at some point in time, people paid for the development of that. But the reason why I want to bring this back is that in terms of setting up like a certain business model, there's one thing that was really interesting is that one of the big endeavors within Cuccinelli is one of his commitments is this long-term craft school for what he, what they say is old hands to pass on skills to new recruits. So that in itself is like, hey, you know, if you're creating a certain level of a business that, you know, deprioritizes growth but also prioritizes other things about creating a certain level of sustainability. Sorry, a correction to that sentence. I know what you mean, but deprioritizes quick growth. Because actually this craftsmanship program or whatever they're calling it is an investment in growth, but in long-term ongoing growth. So I I think that's very cool. Yeah, because it does make me think about the type of businesses the type of interactions you want to have as, I mean, you pay the bills. But to be painfully honest, it's like, hey, you know what? There's certain ways to do it. And we talked about this. Maybe this is why. And episode 200 is probably time to revisit what we do with making up because I feel like we're always reiterating and coming back to previous topics. And one big one is also just like the transactional nature of time spent and outcome, mm. which is often the case versus like building something. Cause I, one thing I find really interesting now is that it's almost as though a lot of things that are occurring around us lose a sense of public good. And what I mean by that is there are things that we, we can put out in the world that we all reap the benefits of, but no single person reaps the benefits, nor do they own it like parks, museums, etc. But I think that this mindset that Accuccinelli is basically putting forth allows them to create something that is going to sustain far beyond sort of like 
the time spent of one individual person. Yeah, I understand right? what you mean. Because I think that's the one thing that in light of everything going on right now, I feel like the things that are dra- pulling our attention into a certain direction are often not quite for, how do you call it? I think a lot of things that are going on right now seem to have a very direct one-to-one input-output in terms of value versus like what are things that actually allow us to, you know, one person works and spends, um, let's call it 20 minutes, and that 20 minutes of effort actually has far larger outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I mean... Like a collective input results in an even greater collective output. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the the ability for you to to create a system that allows people to pass on stories, pass on heritage, like that's actually incredibly invaluable, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. Yeah. Actually, I have an example of this that we'll see if it works in about two weeks. I'm teaching a course this term called professional practice, which I've actually invited Eugene to come be a guest speaker at. <laughs> anyway, one of the things I'm doing with this class um, prior to you coming is each of the 40 students is going to do a short, I hesitate to call it presentation, it's not really a presentation, but they're going to do a short sharing about all of their past work experiences, good and bad. And I'm going to really encourage them to be very candid about those work experiences, as in, you know, this boss didn't pay me for 90 days, whatever it is. Okay. And the reason why this makes so much sense to me is because collectively the 40 of them have way more working experience than what I can say yeah. as one person. Yeah. And so they are like the best resource for each other. Them individually spending like a little bit of time talking results in this like exponentially greater resource yeah. of collective work experience to learn from. And I must give credit to one of the students who originally suggested this to me. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting when you people make a suggestion that then materializes into something a little bit more tangible because it's always a little bit hard because that's another thing too is like that's sort of the act of creativity is that like they didn't necessarily feel that this would work or would not work because they hadn't seen it before they were just like hey here's a suggestion yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. exactly yeah i learned a lot more about this at first when you share this to me i was not sure where you were going with this yeah because uh, I was like, exactly what you said. I was like, this isn't to his taste, but I'm sure this is going somewhere like deeper. Yeah. This is something that maybe in this newfound world that the types of business models that exist might fundamentally change how we conceive something. Right. And I think, you know, within the realm of fashion, one of the hardest parts has always been like your sort of MOQ, like how much investment do you need and how much product are you creating? But maybe there's different ways of doing that as we move forward. Right. Like, I'm not going to say the three-letter word, but like already that's changed the ability for someone to get compensated for their work. Patreon models, obviously this is something that didn't exist five years ago in terms of the, what's the word I'm looking for? The the prevalence of it, mm. right? Like theoretically anyone now can go and start up any sort of business with a slew of tools that then allows them to dictate what type of business they want to build out of it. Whereas in the past, it was primarily ad-driven. Great. Yeah. Should we move on? Let's do it. I'm glad that kept you guessing there. That was yeah, not was what you expected. One. No.
Okay, so my subject this week comes from a bit of a personal fascination, but I do think is relevant to our audience and actually probably a lot of people, you know, have been keeping their own tabs on this. Elizabeth Holmes, former founder of the now defunct company Theranos, has been convicted guilty of four out of 11 charges, three counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to defraud investors. So a bit of context, Theranos started back in 2013, claimed that their technology could run blood tests with just a finger prick, but the technology never actually existed. But the company reached a total valuation at its peak of $10 billion. Okay, I'm going to give you just a little bit more context. Holmes set out, she was under the age of 30, and she said, okay, I'm going to disrupt the U.S. blood testing industry, which is, in, in terms of health industries, like notoriously mm-hmm. difficult to crack into. Uh, the typical way this works in the States, according to different articles, is today I'm talking about is from, kind of from like a bunch of different sources. If you need to get your blood tested, you have to get quite a lot of blood drawn mm-hmm. and it can be really painful yeah. and you have to wait a lot of weeks. And so actually in from that perspective, it is disruptable because like the Theranos proposition is attractive. We're going to come in. We're just going to take one finger prick of blood and you get your results within two days or three days. Right. And people loved it. Lots of investors. Journalist John Kerry broke the story in 2015 of the scandal that the technology didn't exist. This eventually turned into a book called Bad Blood. And there's a podcast. And the story is fascinating to people in part because Elizabeth Holmes as a character is really interesting. Super interesting. Super Everything interesting. Everything from like the fake voice. Yes. Like the, the deliberate masculine voice she puts on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, the deep voice, the hair, the eyeliner. She really, I don't, okay, there's a lot of like back and forth and no one can say for certain like what is intentional or not, but she really made herself into. A character. Yeah. Like she wanted to be an iconic character. And one thing that, I mean, many people have talked about this, but what I continue to find so fascinating about this story is that the media really collaborated with her. To, <laughs> collaborated with her? Well, I mean, not like, like they didn't sit sat down and was like, let's make this happen. But it is true that- They enabled her. They enabled her. They were also like super enamored. It was kind of like Elizabeth oh. Holmes gave them like the perfect cover story. Who's like this Steve Jobs-esque female. Young yeah. female health disruptor like billions of dollars yeah and that story is i guess a kind of a i don't know what to call it i want to say a warning that seems really ominous but just this like idea that you know journalists and media they also become fascinated by very like well it makes their job easier yeah because ultimately this is goes back to the argument we made in the previous segment. It's like, yeah, it makes their life easier in a certain capacity. Well, yeah, it's People related to what you in, said yeah. about ad-based revenue because, you know, Elizabeth Holmes gave them the type of story that they can, like, reliably trust. And people are going to click in, but, oh, what did she do today? Oh, wow, youngest ever female. I'm making that title up. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, but no, totally. Youngest uh, female billionaire, et cetera. Yeah, and so 
most recently, um, a very long trial has come to a close. She was convicted. There have been articles and speculation circulating as to whether this conviction, which wasn't for, for certain, by the way, like people thought maybe she's going to get off scotch-free, even though, the, again, like the tech did not work. Um, so people have been asking whether this conviction is going to impact Silicon Valley and founder behavior. I, I can't say for certain. I mean, we're not located in Silicon Valley. I, I think it is an interesting proposition. Like, does Holmes being convicted guilty mean that founders will be more careful about being trustworthy? You have to pitch clients. Yeah. Do you ever, I don't know if you want to say this, do you ever like kind of not fudge, but. Yeah, sometimes I think. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, it's this gray line between like, oh, I'm. Selling myself I, and intentionally misleading someone. I, I wouldn't ever tell somebody that I would do something that I wasn't able to do or I didn't have a game plan for. But I think where the, the, the fudging becomes is like maybe sometimes like the amount of work you can provide within a certain scope. Mm. To, to use an example, like, are you going to, you know, maybe it's something intangible like, oh, I have a, a bunch of things I can put together and package and research for you. And maybe it's like five of seven things because the other two are not as important, but it made it look good on the estimate. I don't know. I'm just making that up. Like, but I mean, obviously successful partnerships often come down in the agency environment, come down to discussions around estimates and deliverables so that you know that, hey, you know, you're delivering on what you said you would deliver on. I think that it's, Maybe hard to analyze even the your own way of selling yourself, but I do think that if I listen to you like speak like genuinely, if it was this real mm. like speaking to a client, convincing them like you're the right person for the job, there are moments where you will exaggerate something or not. You will as naturally as humans, when you're trying to get something you want you'll imply certain things and not imply other things. Yeah. I mean, this is just, I will, I'll be honest. Like, I mean, I, I look back at interviews I've done and like, as in been interviewed for jobs. And of course I sold myself as like the best candidate for this job. Yeah. Like aware of my weaknesses and I wasn't like not truthful. Right. And definitely not to the degrees that Holmes is, but it's like, on one hand, I empathize because she was just... It's just the degree in which one... It's just the degree in which one person takes it, right? It's the degree of how far you are from the reality of it. Yeah. So, I mean, if to answer the question that I asked, like, I don't really think that Holmes' verdict is going to change the way that founders talk about themselves or sell their companies. And I wonder if... Investors will do better due diligence. I think that's a possibility. Yeah, I guess it depends on the industry, to be honest. It's like, I think the reason why is like investing these days feels like it's taken a very different strategy where in the past it was really about value and research and whatnot. Now it's almost purely speculative in a way. So it's like, hey, you know what? You're one of... 20 people that I'm going to deploy money with, deploy capital with, I don't really need you to be a winner. 
Mm. Right. Mm. Like, let's just see where it goes, Mm. which is unfortunate because it also enables the wrong type of behavior. Right. It also maybe punishes people that don't have the same ability to weave a narrative. And there was a Twitter thread I came across and there were two options for this question which company will fail first? A company with all marketing and no product or all product and no marketing, right? And obviously most people kind of were like, oh, well, it has to be both, but the reality is that the marketing company will probably get further along than the company that's just purely product-driven. I mean, that's actually a perfect encapsulation of Theranos. Yeah. Because they got on all this time with marketing and no product. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and actually this is weirdly related to the first subject as well because one conclusion I drew about Theranos is that they survived by hype being exponential mm-hmm. in growth because the Holmes and Theranos like marketing strategy was let's get some really famous names and powerful people at the start and that will get the buy-in of even more famous, powerful people. And essentially that's how hype works. Yeah. If you secure those first like attractive buy-ins, that all just comes adding up on top of each other. Exactly. Celebrities, politicians. It's not really an encouraging idea, but um, I think just being aware that that's how human nature works. It's always worked that way in a, in a sense. And I think what's changed now is just the velocity in which one can execute on it. Mm. Like the ability for you to send a message and get people hooked on what you represent is not just limited to who I meet in person or who I can get a meeting with. It's about who can I distribute this message to and come across my content and have it spread and amplified. Yeah. One last thing before we wrap things up that I wanted to mention is I was reading a TechCrunch article about this conviction and the conclusion of it was that this might have been entire situation might have been avoided had Holmes had a good community of friends, which I thought was an what? interesting suggestion. Okay, here, like a- hear me out. On the, I'm not saying I necessarily agree, but this author said that Holmes intentionally designed her life to be really just totally work-centric, okay? Just completely focused on talking to investors and hiring people and talking to her CFO and wasn't attached to her family, had no friends, it seemed by any means. And this author puts forward the idea that what founders really need or people in positions of leadership is that you have people not affiliated with your work who can tell you when you are off your rocker. So oh, yeah, example, that's actually kind of interesting. Like me to you and you tell me, I don't know. Like an Am idea. Studios is going to spend $100,000 on this pitch for nicotine. Yes. Or and then like I would say, I don't think you should do that, Eugene. And then it makes me think twice. Yeah. Actually, hopefully. that's pretty valid. I think that it definitely enables you to, well, I've said enable like 50 times on this podcast. It definitely impacts your decision making in a potentially positive light. Or it's not to say it makes the decision for you, but it makes you scrutinize it a bit more. Yeah, it it depends, though, whether your friends are sensible, because I do think it could go either way. And by the way, the author is Amanda Silberling for TechCrunch to give uh, due credit. But it it does really depend on your friends, because on the other hand, 
you could have people around you in your support network who say, go for the nicotine contract. You're going to make big, big money. And then you can turn that money into something else good. Don't stress about the fact that nicotine is addictive. It's possible. It really depends on the type of friends and your judgment. Good thing I don't picture any of my friends suggesting that. Um, But that's it Uh, for me on conversation around Theranos that I thought was engaging. It's kind of nice. So weird. I really have been following the saga for like four years now. And it's like closed chapter. All right. All right, good place to wrap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. And also, if you want to know more about the wonderful recording location that we record out of, you can check out FM Below Ground on Instagram, online. They have other shows besides us, which uh, if you like this podcast, you'll probably find interesting. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.